Father, you are indeed a holy, good, gracious God. And we worship you today as we gather together in this place called Life Point Church. We do that, Lord God, fully recognizing that we're not the only Christians on the block, but that there are other believers out there who are gathered in other locations and who are worshiping you in the same spirit of truth that we're doing our very best to worship you in. And so we ask, God, that you would meet us in our worship, that you would meet them in their worship. Father, we pray for these brothers and sisters in Christ and other congregations around us here on the south side and across Indiana and across the United States and to the uttermost parts of the world, Father, your people gathered together worshiping you. And so we're a part of that, God. We're a microcosm of that, a part of the body of Christ, and we rejoice in that. We're asking today, Lord God, that our worship would mingle with their worship, Father, that it would be, as the Scriptures say, a very pleasing aroma to you, God, and that you would inhabit our praises today. And the way that we care for one another and the way that we serve one another, Father, for those who are taking the time out right now to serve our children, our grandchildren, to, to, to teach our middle schoolers and our adults, God, those who, who greeted us and who checked us in and served us a drink, and Lord, all the things that are taking place here, we rejoice in these, in these good things, part of being a, 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 a part of the family and the, and the, the body of Jesus. We rejoice in that, Lord God, recognizing that not everybody has that privilege, Lord. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who won't come into a warm building out of the cold and and rain and and yuckiness of today. And so, Father, we're cognizant of that, and we want to say thank you for that and not take that for granted. But we give you thanks for this facility, and we give you thanks for the the, the means by which we support this facility and, and pay for it and turn the lights on and the heat on and So, God, these things are good things from your hand. We rejoice in them. We give you thanks and praise. And as we gather together to worship, we pray that the name of your Son, Jesus, would be exalted. We pray, Father, that we would continue to do the work that you've called us to do as the local body of Christ, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to train and to equip, God, that we might all grow up in the faith, that we would no longer be infants tossed to and fro by the waves, Lord God, and torn apart by every strange teaching that is out there, but that we would hold fast to the truth of Jesus Christ and to the truth of the gospel. God, that we would continue to send out men and women with that same truth and gospel missions. And we pray, Father, for our missionaries today. We pray for Dale and and Cheryl Ramsey, thankful for them, Lord, as as we consider them particularly today. And we lift them up to you. And we're thankful for our long partnership with them, Lord God, and for their time overseas and now their time here in the States at the University of Cincinnati and and the way that they're serving there, primarily international students. And so we pray, God, that their connection with international students there would be vital. Lord, I know that they've had a, a, a Friday night study that the attendance has begun to dwindle. And they're trying to figure out why. And I pray, God, that you would, you would help them to see. Lord, it may just be something that you're doing, and it may be something they're doing. Whatever it is, God, that, that they would be able to get a bead on that and that they would continue to, be, to, uh, to have a fruitful ministry on that campus. Lord, that you would continue uh, to, to give them favor amongst the administration and amongst the student body as well. And so we commend them to you today and their work to you. In our partnership with them, Lord, we ask that you would be a blessing to them. 
Now, Lord God, we're going to turn to your word and to the prophet Habakkuk, and we pray that you would give us insight into your word. So, Father, as we sit under the proclamation of your word, teach us, Holy Spirit, illuminate the text for us, help us to see, help us to apply the text to our own lives, both individually, corporately, as this this body of Christ. Give us wisdom, Lord God, now, as we walk through this today. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our God, amen and amen. Well, today we turn to a second inquiry of Habakkuk the prophet. Habakkuk has shared his first burden with the Lord, his complaint with the Lord. God has heard. God has responded to Habakkuk's complaint. Now Habakkuk has heard, and now he has another complaint or another burden that he'd like to lay before the Lord. And so we're going to look at that today. God has responded, and now we see that God has a plan to bring about an answer to Habakkuk's prayer. And it's oftentimes not seen that way, right? We see this as Habakkuk has prayed and God has said, said something different, but that's not really what's happening. Habakkuk, if you remember in his first complaint, says, Lord, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do I have to see this? Right here in my own land amongst the people of Judah, I'm seeing this injustice, I'm seeing uh, this wickedness, and I want it to come to an end. Why do I have to keep looking at it? And God's first response to that is, you don't. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take care of the wickedness and the injustice in Judah. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring the Babylonians and they're going to crush Judah. And Habakkuk says, no, that's not what I meant, right? You're answering my prayer, but you're not answering it the way I wanted you to answer it. So let's try this again, and we'll see if we get a different response the second time is essentially where we find Habakkuk here this morning. Habakkuk lives in the land of Judah. And I've had a few questions via email about this, so let me just try to clarify this a little bit for, for your thinking here. He lives in the, in the land of Judah. It is the southern kingdom of what was once Israel. And Israel was one kingdom at one time, if you'll remember, and then they split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom called Israel, go figure, and the southern kingdom called Judah. Now, the northern kingdom sometimes is called Ephraim. And now you know why people get confused about this, right? There's a lot of different names for the people of Israel. Sometimes the southern kingdom is called uh, the kingdom of David. Um, And so it can get a little confusing. But the kingdom has split, and there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. At least there was at one time. But that northern kingdom is no longer there. The Assyrian Empire has come and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And all that's left now is Judah to the south. The Assyrians could not press their attack into Judah. God spared Judah, but the northern kingdom, Israel or Ephraim, was taken off, and they're no longer there anymore. That took place about 135, 140 years before the time of Habakkuk the prophet. Now, he is there in the land of Judah, and he's concerned about the land of Judah. He's concerned about his people, God's people, the Jews who are left in Israel, which again now is just the southern kingdom of Judah. And if you followed all of that, you get an A on the quiz. So we're talking here late 7th century. That gets a little confusing too, right? Because it never seems to be the 7th century isn't the 700s BC. 
So we're talking at the, the late 7th century, which means like 615 to 600 BC, roughly. I don't have to tell you, that's a long time ago. It's a long time ago. Habakkuk is addressing God who, interestingly enough, is the exact same God that Habakkuk was addressing in the 7th century B.C. And so, friends, we need to realize that God sees life through a different lens than we do. He sees life through a different lens. Here's how we tend to, I think, and if you think about this, I think you'll tend to agree with me because I'm always, I'm not going to say that. (laughs) We tend to see life in like 100-year snippets, right? Right? I was born in 1966, and I kind of see things in like a hundred-year snippets because that's about as much life, if everything goes really, really well for me, that I'm going to have. We tend to kind of see that. Now, we know history. We read history, right? Those of us who are smart, we read history, right? So we know what's happened. We know it's been a long, long uh, life in this world, right? People have been around for a long time. But I think we tend to see life kind of like hundred-year snippet, hundred-year snippet, 100-year snippet, and I'm in this 100-year snippet, and this is the 100 years that matter, right? Everything that came before is kind of foggy. Everything that comes in the distance, it's a little foggy for us. But these 100 years, we kind of got. We got these ones figured out. I think Habakkuk's in that same boat, right? He's living in Judah in the late 7th century, and he's seeing life through that lens. But God doesn't see life through that lens, right? God sees everything from eternity past, eternity future. And I I get it. I know you can't say past and future with eternity, but I just did. Eternity past and eternity future, right? God sees it all. It's all there before Him. But we just see it in these hundred-year snippets, and and Habakkuk is seeing it that way as well. But even in this hundred-year snippet, those of us who are wise, we can see the wickedness of humanity not just in the 100-year snippets, but everything that came before as well and what's in our little groove of the history of our planet, right? We see that wickedness, and Habakkuk sees that as well. He sees the wickedness. He sees the folly of humankind, and we'll talk a little bit about that here today as well. He sees that there's a foolishness inherent in humankind, and he is butting that up against the wisdom of God, and he's trying to figure it all out. He's trying to sort all this stuff out, just like you're trying to sort it out as well, trying to figure out all of this stuff. Right here in the midst of our short little lifespan, how does all this stuff work? That's Habakkuk the prophet in the 7th century BC in the land of Judah as God answers his complaints or his burdens that he lays before him. And so now he wants to lay before God, a second complaint or a second inquiry, questions about God. And so let's see what questions he has for God today. We're in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. That's going to close out or end Habakkuk chapter 1 for us. And uh, so again, I've said this before, Habakkuk's Old Testament, if you're new to your Bibles and you have your Bible with you and you like to have it in front of you like I do, um, you're going to have a hard time finding Habakkuk if you're not used to your Bible, okay? Towards the end of the Old Testament, And so my recommendation, again, go to your iPad or whatever you're carrying or go to your Bible, look through the index, you'll find Habakkuk the prophet. If you don't want to go to all that, we've got it right here on the screen for you here this morning as well. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. So let's stand, let's honor the Lord, shall we? 
as we, uh, as we read from His Word. This is Habakkuk's second complaint or second inquiry to God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. And therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. So here's Habakkuk's second complaint. In opposition to the Chaldeans, when I say Chaldeans, I mean the Babylonians. Again, here we go with different terms for the same people, right? They're from Chaldea, an ancient part of Mesopotamia. And so they're known as Chaldeans, but most of us in history today know them as the Babylonians. And in opposition to these Babylonians and their self-worship, they revel in their own powers, particularly in warfare, their own ability to manufacture war, implements of war, cavalry, and other things to take over the nations. It has become their God. In opposition to that, Habakkuk sees God for who God is. And so he says to them, are you not everlasting? Right? Do you not see from eternity past to eternity future? Are you not here? Are you not an everlasting God? Are you not a rock, immovable? Are you not a holy God? And so he's asking these questions of God. And he is demonstrating he believes that God is different than what the Babylonians think about themselves and about their gods. Now, very quickly here, because again, receiving some questions about this, in the text, you'll notice oftentimes, particularly in Habakkuk's uh, prophecy, but actually almost 7,000 times across the whole Old Testament, you'll see the term Lord, but it's all in caps in your English Bible, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Why? Why does it do that? Is it just to honor God's name? That's not it. It's because what it's doing in the English translation is it's taking a Hebrew word for God. Hang in there. You're hanging in there with me? We call this the tetragrammaton. Write that down. You'll need that to get into heaven. <laughs> it's called the tetragrammaton. The tetragrammaton simply means four letters. It's four Hebrew letters that spell out God's name. But here's what the Jews wouldn't do. They wouldn't use God's holy name. Why? Because there's a third commandment that says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And in fear that they might accidentally take His name in vain, they just don't use the name. It's written there as four letters, the tetragrammaton, but when they come to it and they're reading, they say Hashem, which means the name. Or they say, Adonai, which means my Lord. Every time they see that, they don't say it. So how is it pronounced? We don't know. How could we know? They didn't pronounce it. 
right? Now, some people will tell you it's pronounced Jehovah, and we won't get into all of that except to say it's not pronounced Jehovah. <laughs> that comes from the Middle Ages, friends. That's from William Tyndale taking that tetragrammaton and wanting to be able to write it and therefore taking, hang in there with me, one more minute. The original Hebrew language had no vowels, only consonants. Try to read that. But later, so that it would flow better when it was spoken, Jewish scholars put vowel markers in. They came up with a vowel system. And when they came to the Tetragrammaton, they took the vowel markers for the term, my Lord, Adonai, and they merged them with the Tetragrammaton, with the four letters. And that sounds like Jehovah, okay? That sounds like Jehovah. Now, most scholars think that the original term was probably something like Yahweh, but we don't know that for sure, okay? Jehovah is the vowel markers from Adonai added to the Tetragrammaton. Every time you see that in the Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's that word. What does that word mean? It means the God of Israel, as opposed to every other God out there. It is the covenant name of God. It's not that the Jews wouldn't use other terms for God, but when they were talking about their God as opposed to the Philistines' gods or the Assyrians' gods or the Babylonians' god, it's that tetragrammaton. It is that word. It is Hashem. It is Adonai. It is maybe Yahweh. It was not Jehovah because that didn't come around for a long, 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 long time, right? Habakkuk never knew God as Jehovah. He wouldn't use God's name, okay? He would have substituted something else. Okay, make some sense? If you nod your head like that, I'll feel like I've done a really good job today. All right, very good. So that's what we're talking about when we see those, those letters in the capital, L-O-R-D. What does that mean for us? It means Habakkuk is addressing his God in opposition to all the other gods. He's addressing the God of Israel. He's addressing the covenant God that he has a relationship with, that he thinks he knows and understands. That's who he's complaining to. He's not just throwing it out there for any God to take it up. He's speaking to his God, the God of Israel, and he's saying to this God, why can't I understand you? Are you not from everlasting? Did I get that wrong? Are you not a rock? Are you not immovable? Are you not holy? Because I believe all those things are true, I think Habakkuk would say. But I cannot make it gel with what you keep saying to me. I cannot put these things together. God is holy in Habakkuk's eyes. And it all comes in a rhetorical question, right? In the English, you'll see question marks there. Are you not everlasting? Are you not holy? Those are rhetorical questions. It doesn't mean I don't believe it. It means I do believe it. Now help me to understand it because I'm not getting it. I'm really having a hard time grappling with you, God. Habakkuk, I think, believes this stuff deeply. He believes it's true. But God is not responding to Habakkuk the way that Habakkuk expected him to respond. And so his categories for God are being challenged. Maybe you've been there sometime in your life, right? Your categories for God, they get challenged, and you try to figure out who God is. 
But this isn't a lack of faith or even a weak faith in Habakkuk. Rather, it is a perplexed faith that is actually tormenting this prophet's soul. He's being tormented. And it's not because he doesn't believe and he's trying to figure out, is there really a God? That's how most people today get tormented in our culture. But there's no torment for them. He knows there's a God. He believes there's a God. He believes everlasting, that he is holy, that he is a rock of Israel. His soul is tormented because this holy rock of a God who goes from everlasting to everlasting is not fitting into his categories anymore. And he's asking God, explain yourself. Help me to figure you out. Here we see some parallels with the prophet Jeremiah, who was a contemporary, probably a contemporary of some sort. Their lives overlapped in some sense, we think, in in history. Here's what Jeremiah the prophet has to say. Righteous are you, O Lord, there it is, Lord in all caps, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. This can also be translated, but I have some questions for you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their heart. Man, do we ever live in a day like that today, right? You are near in their mouth, but far from their heart. But you, O oh Lord, you know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, he will not see our latter end. Or in other words, he won't see what we're doing. This God of yours can't see any better than the gods that we have can see. Notice what Jeremiah is saying. He's saying very similar things to Habakkuk. Why do I see the wicked prosper? And what would Jeremiah like God to do with them? The same thing Habakkuk would would like God to do with them. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. Separate them out. Israel on one side, Judah on one side, and everybody else on the other. And then you take these ones out and you slaughter them. That's what he wants to happen. Habakkuk doesn't want God to separate them out and say, now this group is going to come and conquer this group. He, he, he didn't have categories for that, and he doesn't want it, and he cannot see it and even believe it. Remember what God said to him, I'm about to do something in your day that if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't even believe it. And now Habakkuk is getting it. You're right. I don't believe it. I don't believe it, and I want answers to my questions. I think it's very much like our own perplexity when we have to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. But not our will, O Lord, but your will be done, right? That's the prayer that Jesus gave us. Not my will, but your will be done. Now, let's admit it. That's just a hard prayer, right? It's not hard when things are going your way because you figure God's on your side and it's going your way because you're you're doing good things, right? So it's easy to pray that then. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. As long as everything's going smooth, let your will be done. But friends, when your baby's dying, it's a whole nother prayer, isn't it? That's a whole nother prayer. And that's a hard one all of a sudden. Not my will, but your will be done. It's Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Lord, let this cup pass for me. He's speaking about the cup of God's wrath. If it's possible, let it pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And God's answer is, 
It's not possible. Right? You will drink that cup. You will receive the wrath of God on the cross. So, essentially, the answer to Jesus was no. No, you have to do this. This, this, this plan that was enacted in eternity past, it goes through. And Jesus' response is, then it shall go through. And so Mark is able to tell us in his gospel, he set his face toward Jerusalem like flint. He knew it had to happen, and so he went. Not because it was joyful. And Habakkuk's going to have to learn to set his face like flint and understand that God is God and Habakkuk is a prophet and a man who sees life in snippets and God sees all things And his complaints are going to have to be figured out, and God will help him, but he's not going to help him figure out God, because that's impossible. We can't figure out everything about God. And so here's where Habakkuk is at. Now, verse 12, it's an interesting verse. I'll just talk about it for a second. No one really knows what's happening there in verse 12 in the original Hebrew. It's just really hard to translate. And so we translate it, probably in your translation, the one that I read from today, the ESV, says, we shall not die. Literally, it probably means you shall not die. And that makes sense, right? Because he's talking about God being everlasting, and now we'd say, and you're not going to die. The problem with that is there's not a Jew alive in that day who would say that. Because it, it seems like you're wondering if God might have an end. And so it's almost for sure he doesn't say that. What does he say? We're not sure. It's probably a sign of faith, right? Lord, this is who you are. This is who I believe you are. And in the end, we will not die. Your people will survive this. That's likely what it means. It could be taken this way. This is who you are, God. I know it. Therefore, what you're about to do, you're not going to do it. We will not die. You're not going to follow through with this. It could be that too. We just don't know which one it is. This guy's perplexed. He's perplexed about his God. And he is trying to get his mind around everything that is taking place as God interacts with him. Because our God, friends, is a perplexing God. God has now replied to Habakkuk's complaint. Habakkuk has heard. There's no indication that God is going to change his mind or change course, right? He gives Habakkuk no hope that, it, that Judah is going to be saved. And that's, prob- that's problematic for Habakkuk, the prophet, who's, who's a Jew, Here again, I think we have a parallel to Jeremiah, the prophet. Jeremiah lives as the Babylonians conquer Judah and begin to take wave after wave, three massive waves of Jews out of Judah and move them to Babylon and send them off into into exile. And Jeremiah lives during that day. And Jeremiah is a prophet and he's trying to grapple with God and figure all this out as well. And then At least three times, and I've counted, there may be one more, so forgive me if I've missed one, but I think it's three times in Jeremiah the prophet, that God tells Jeremiah, stop praying for Judah. (laughs) I'm not going to save them, so stop praying. I'm not hearing your prayer anymore. Now, that doesn't mean I can't hear. All of a sudden, I just can't hear. It's not coming in clear. It means I'm hearing it, but I'm not going to respond to it. Stop praying for the people of Judah. You can imagine what Jeremiah is thinking. What do you mean I'm supposed to stop praying for your people? God says, that's what I mean. Stop praying for them. They're going into exile. That's what will happen to the people of Judah. Now, later on, when there's many of those exiles from Judah in Babylon, God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, 
tells Jeremiah, write this down and then send it to the exiles. And so he sends it via messenger to the exiles in Babylon. And God's word to the exiles in Babylon is this. Pray for the Babylonians. Pray for the city that you're in. Because as long as it goes well for them, it will go well for you. So pray for them. Give your daughters away in marriage. Uh, Reproduce. Fill the land. Do all those things. Or in other words, settle in. You're in for a long ride. Okay? Settle in right here to, to Babylon. Friends, again, can you... Well, we can't. I can't either. We can't imagine what that's like for a Jew of that day, to have God say, all right, you're my people, but you're in exile, and the best thing you can do now is pray for the people who conquered you. Because if it goes well for them, if I bless them, it will trickle down now to you. This stuff is just unfathomable for these prophets. And Habakkuk is finding himself in that same situation as well. The only question that seems to remain for Habakkuk so far in our narrative is the age-old question of lament. And what's the age-old question of lament? Why? Right? Why? Why are you going to do this? Why does it work this way? Because I can't understand how you are doing things the way you are doing. If God is so holy, Habakkuk believes that, that he cannot look at wrong, he says in our text today. Now there, read, cannot approve of wrong, okay? It doesn't mean God can't see evil. He's so holy, he just, you know, I can't even look at it. No, he sees it all the time. He cannot approve it. He cannot approve of evil. So friends, again, bring this now into the 21st century. Here's a little teaching point for me and for you. God sees wickedness, but he will never approve of it. He cannot approve of it. He's a holy God. He cannot approve of it. He cannot approve of our sin. Now, we may say, but it's all been passed in legal courts, but God can't approve of our sin. We may say, but it's me, right? It's my body. It's my autonomy you're messing with here, God. God cannot approve of your evil. He will not approve of your sin, not mine either. He won't say, I love you, you're my child, so this time, that's okay. It doesn't work that way. He cannot approve of our evil. He will not look at it. He will not tolerate it. That's the same God. And Habakkuk is saying, if you are so holy that you will not approve of evil, how is it that it looks like you're approving of evil? Because the Babylonians, they are bad dudes. We're bad. They're bad, bad. What are you going to do about them? How can you look at that and approve of their evil? They're going to conquer us. How could that possibly be right? How will a wholly unrighteous people devour the people that God loves? How could that possibly happen? And all of a sudden here, the wicked, they have a different referent now. In his first complaint, the wicked, do you remember who were the wicked in his first complaint? It was his own people, right? It was Judah. I can't stand looking at this anymore, he says. Why do you make me look at these people? Why do our rulers do this? They're wicked. They're unjust. And I have to look at it day after day after day. Why are the wicked in Judah prospering? But now when God says they're not going to for long, Habakkuk says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Why do those wicked people prosper? Right? 
Now it's the Babylonians who are wicked, and all of a sudden, Judah, in comparison to the Babylonians, they look pretty good, right? Have you ever heard this one? Do you think you'll go to heaven? Yeah, I do. Why? Because I'm not as bad as other people, right? I mean, I'm bad, but everybody else is bad, bad. And so put me on a scale, I'm going to do okay. And that's how God works, right? Put you on a scale, a little bit better than the rest, you're in, and they go. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. This is what Habakkuk is saying, right? Yeah, we're bad, but they're really bad. We're getting the point by now, right? We're getting the point. Habakkuk is hard, having a hard time figuring out how God's justice works. How do the balances of justice work in God's economy? In Habakkuk, in Jeremiah, they would say, we don't agree with you. That's not how justice is supposed to work. We have you figured out, God, and that's not how we figured you out. You ever been that way before the Lord? But that doesn't seem right. <laughs> that doesn't seem fair. How does that work? That's what Habakkuk is saying. It doesn't just seem right. And so if it doesn't seem right, I don't really have a category for that anymore. So Habakkuk is faced with a sovereign God, a God who is holy and righteous and everlasting, who hears him but will not acquiesce to his feelings. He won't go so far as to acquiesce to what Habakkuk is feeling. Habakkuk is experiencing, I think, what we call sometimes the dark night of the soul, right? He can't get God. He loves them from a distance. As long as he's doing what he wants them to do, he loves this God. But when this God starts doing things that don't fit his categories, all of a sudden now he's like, I don't know what to do with this. And he's perplexed and he's pondering this God and he's learning an incredibly valuable lesson about God in the process. He just doesn't know it yet. He's being squeezed, and without getting too graphic, he's being pressed down, and all the gooey stuff is coming out. And what's left behind is God, as God is, not all the stuff that Habakkuk had worked around his God. The press, the, the, the pressure, the suffering is squeezing him to the point of breaking, but God is molding him in the process into a prophet who is now going to better understand his God, not fully understand his God, because ain't nobody going to do that, but he's going to better understand his God, but it is not pleasant. He doesn't like it. It's not what he would do. It's not the way he would do it. Friends, he's essentially asking, what do you do when the curse is, or, or, or the cure is worse than the disease? What do you do when that happens? And some of you have been in that situation, right? The doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry, you have cancer, and it's bad. It's stage four. We've got what we think may be a cure. It's just going to take about a year of your life of misery, right? You're going to be getting drugs pumped into your system. You're going to feel horrible. You're going to lose your hair. All these things, right? And some people, when they're older, what do they say? They say the cure is worse than the disease. And so I'm, I'm not going to go through that. And that's understandable. And others will say, no, I'll, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go through that, right? I'm going to go through that cure, which at, time, at that time will seem worse than the disease itself, 
with the hope that the disease will eventually be uprooted. That's where Habakkuk is. What do I do, God, when your cure is worse than the disease? The disease is wickedness amongst my own people. I don't like it. The cure is wicked people coming in and conquering us. I really don't like that. And God says, but that's the cure. That's what fixes your problem. That's the answer to your prayer. He's hearing what James Taylor tells us, right? Lord knows when the cold wind blows, it'll turn your head around. And that's what's happening, I think, for Habakkuk, man. His head is getting turned around. The wind is blowing, it's not blowing, it's not filling his sails, and he doesn't like it. A better philosopher than James Taylor said this, C.S. Lewis, pain insists upon being attended to. Have you noticed that? When you're in pain, that's what you're thinking about, right? Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but He shouts to us in our suffering. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Habakkuk is being aroused by God. God is speaking to him through a megaphone, and Habakkuk is saying, I don't want to hear it, la, 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 I don't want to hear it, right? Because it's suffering, and who wants to sign up for that? I don't. You don't. Friends, that's why suffering has to come from God, because you would never sign up to be broken. I would never sign up, Lord, actually break me. I mean, break me. Nobody does that. That's why God has to do it, because we would never sign up for that. If we're going to be broken, God's got to do the breaking. Now, God can also do the mending, too, but He's got to do the one who is doing the breaking. Think about Johnny Erickson Tata, right? Some of you know that name. 1967, 17-year-old, healthy young girl, dives into a lake, hits the bottom, quadriplegic for life. Now, almost 60 years later, for almost 60 years, not been able to use anything below her neck in terms of movement, and yet has come to understand God in an entirely new way. Not perfectly, but in an entirely new way. Every book that Johnny Erickson Tata writes, as far as I know, is a good book. We've got some right here in our church library. They don't all talk about suffering, but some of them do, and they'll tell her story of what she's learned from God being a quadriplegic for almost 60 years. Friends, brokenness before God has great value. It really does. It has great value. Weakness can become a strength. And those of you who know the Bible, you know what text I'm going to now, right? We're going to the Apostle Paul, who is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. A thorn in the side, he says. We don't know what that is. He doesn't like it. He says to the Corinthians, Three times I pleaded with God, really strong word there in the original language, pleaded with God. I'm begging God three times, take it away from me. And Jesus responds how? No, but my grace will be sufficient for you. My grace will be sufficient for you because in your weakness, my strength is perfected. And then Paul is able to say, I'm assuming with at least some, some conviction, and therefore, I glory in my weakness, because when I am weak, Christ is strong in me. 
Now, I don't know how much Paul believed that. I suspect he believed it, but it was hard when he woke up every morning with a thorn in the flesh for the rest of his life, whatever that thorn might have been. Broken people turn to Christ. That's what broken people do. Broken people plead with God. Partially broken people or somewhat broken people, they ask God to come alongside and help them as they seek help from a multitude of other avenues. Jesus is invited to become a part of the picture. This part I don't have under control, Jesus. Please take it. This part I got under control, and I'll take care of this. And don't be coming over this way, right? You take this, I'll take this, and as long as we do that, Jesus, smooth sailing. We're going to have a great life together. But here's the problem with that. The Bible says that God shares His glory with no one else. He doesn't share His glory with anybody. Sounds kind of conceited, doesn't it? Helps when you're the God of the universe. I share my glory with no one else. And so when we say, Jesus, come into my life, using modern terminology, Jesus says, I will be the chairman of the board. And we say, no, we would like you to be a board member. And Jesus says, I don't serve on any boards. (laughs) I will be the chairman, but I will not serve on your board. Habakkuk is learning about this God. We have to learn about this God too, friends. We have to learn about this God. He is learning about the true God, not God in Habakkuk's image. And man, do we need to learn that lesson. God doesn't allow us to mold Him. He molds us. It always works that way and never works the other way. But this is an idolatrous people, and I'm almost out of time. So, verses 14 through 17, they show us the true nature, not only of the Babylonians, but of all people. We are idolatrous at heart, friends, all of us. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they were idolatrous in the literal sense. They worshiped a pantheon of gods and, quite frankly, demons. Remember when Daniel and his three friends get taken from Judah into Babylon, part of this dispersion that God is telling Habakkuk is going to happen. It does happen. Daniel and his three friends go. What do they do with Daniel and their three friends? You guys are great Jews. Keep being really good Jews. We love having good Jews with us. No. What do they say? Welcome to hell, where we worship demons. We're going to give you new names. Daniel, your Belteshazzar, named after a god. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Jewish names? Don't bet on it. Babylonian names, named after their demon gods. They're saying to them, put your Jewishness away and join the team. Come on board. We'll give you new names, and we'll teach you everything you need to know. What's those four boys' response? Not on our life. We keep our names. We keep who we are. We will serve our God, even if we have to step into a fiery furnace. That's the difference, friends. That is the difference between those who believe in God and those who believe in a God. That's the difference there. The Babylonians are an idolatrous people. Again, speaking from Jeremiah, learn not the ways of the nations. Their customs are vanity. 
They take a tree from the forest and they cut it down. They work it like a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. And then they fasten it down so that it won't fall over. And then they say, you're our God. And one of the great lines from Jeremiah the prophet is, these idols are like a scarecrow in a melon patch. They cannot speak. They cannot walk. You have to carry them around. They can do you no harm. They can do you no good. That's the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is saying, wow, are these people going to ravish the nations forever? Are these people going to ravish the nations forever, God? And now, as I conclude the message, here's our word of hope for today. God's answer is no, no, not forever, not forever. There's a plan for that. Malachi chapter 4, last book of the Old Testament for us. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise up with healings in his wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord God of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike this land with a curse. Or in other words, this keeps going, I will curse this land, but it's not going to keep going. Because there's a great and awesome day of the Lord coming. And there is one who is coming, the anointed of the Lord, who will rise up with healing in his wings. That, my friends, comes 400 years later from Malachi. He's dead. But 400 years later, who shows up on the scene? Jesus of Nazareth. He shows up on the scene. This isn't going to last forever. God has a plan for Habakkuk and for Malachi and for you and me, Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb, meaning Jesus. But its light will light the nations, and in that light they will walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of all the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, for only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be there, friends. Does this last forever? No. God has a plan. He's fixing it. He will fix it, and we need to take hope in that. Amen? Amen. God, help us to take hope in that, because it's a hard one for us. We see the wickedness We see the injustice of our land, and we see that we're a part of the problem. God, help us. Break us. Break us down, Lord God. Mold us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray for that for each one of us individually and for this church corporately, and I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.